This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Monday. We are back with more neurology. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great. The last week of neurology. And then I guess to set people up, we are going to do nutrition, which is the other high, highest yield topic. And then we're going to really do everybody's favorite, just start hammering out questions as we are getting to the six-month mark for the yeah, test. That's exciting. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I think I think it's good to review some of these large um, sections in order right. to make sure that we are going to be able to answer those questions coming mm-hmm. up. <laughs> um, we are beginning with hydrocephalus, mm-hmm. um, and so I guess I guess I can take that. We uh, hydrocephalus is a relatively straightforward uh, pathology, um, just because it's it's quite mechanical um, and hydrocephalus usually presents with signs of increased ICP um, and that includes sort of bulging of the fontanelle or uh, spreading of the anterior fontanelle, increased head circumference and separated cranial sutures. Now hydrocephalus can be categorized into one of two things, either obstructive or communicating. Now if we're dealing with obstructive hydrocephalus, um, then the differential diagnosis can include a few things, six items to be precise. The first one is a, is probably the most common one. It is IVH. So post-hemorrhagic uh, hydrocephalus uh, secondary to IVH. And the way you should think about this really is to think of your cerebral spinal fluid as, um, as basically a, a sink, basically, with a faucet and a drain and in the case of uh, post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus, um, in IVH, what you have is that you have bleeding, and this blood tends to obstruct the outflow of CSF, but CSF continues to be produced. And so basically, it's almost as if the sink is running, but the, but the, the drain is clogged. And so then suddenly, uh, CSF will accumulate in the ventricles and cause hydrocephalus. Another one would be aqueductal stenosis, um, which is involving congenital obstruction of the aqueduct, leading to third and lateral ventricular dilation. Um, This represents about a third of all the patients with uh, obstructive hydrocephalus. And what does cause uh, aqueductal stenosis? Well, it could be caused by uh, viral disease like mumps, rubella, and parainfluenza. It can also be associated with Arnold Chiari. Um, There is a form of X-linked recessive um, with associated adducted thumb, agenesis of the corpus callosum, and mental deficiency. And uh, we have an autosomal recessive form that is uh, mostly non-familiar associated with bacterial. So uh, IVH, aqueductal stenosis. Other forms of obstructive hydrocephalus include agenesis of the corpus callosum, Denny Walker malformation, which we spoke about uh, the week prior, congenital hydrocephalus with an onset in utero and presentation in the first few days after birth, uh, usually congenital hydrocephalus 
uh, is often accompanied by uh, severe congenital anomalies, and uh, five to ten percent of those are related to Dandy Walker malformation. Uh, it can also be involved with teratogenesis, maternal malnutrition, genetic factors, um, and uh, masses IVH, intrauterine IVH, vein of gale malformation. Now. You have to assess for other anomalies. You have to send a karyotype. You have to do an MRI and CT and really determine if there is an underlying cause, which you should address, and potentially then treating the hydrocephalus itself with a ventricular peritoneal shunt placement. And then finally, the last cause of hydrocephalus in the obstructive form is masses. The second form of hydrocephalus is called communicating hydrocephalus, where there's really no obstruction. And this can be caused by IVH. This can be caused again by Arnold uh, Chiari malformation. It can be caused by lysencephaly, encephalocele, leptomeningeal inflammation, GBS ventriculitis, congenital absence of arachnoid granulations, oversecretion of CSF, and acquired hydrocephalus. In the case of communicating hydrocephalus, really basically, there's really no mechanical obstruction. However, the production of CSF is superior to the amount of CSF that is being reabsorbed, leading to a net effect of more CSF accumulating in, um, in the cerebral system, I guess. And that really is hydrocephalus. So I think the most common cause, IVH being, one, being the most common cause of hydrocephalus is one of them. I think you have to know about aqueductal stenosis and then learn about these other more esoteric stuff. Now, let's talk about another topic uh, that is uh, very common in neonatal neurology, and that's neonatal encephalopathy. Now, um, according to a 2014 report, neonatal encephalopathy is defined as a syndrome of disturbed neurologic function in the earliest days after birth in an infant born at or beyond 35 weeks of gestation manifested by subnormal level of consciousness seizures and often accompanied by difficulty with initiating and maintaining respiration and depression of tones and reflexes now many things can cause encephalopathy um hypoxic ischemic injury is obviously the one that we're all thinking of that we'll look at um intracranial hemorrhage like a stroke a thromboembolic event another form of stroke and then any form of infectious uh, process, genetic syndromes. And then finally, in the first few days after birth, maybe uh, inborn error of metabolism. So any metabolic syndrome can be a cause of encephalopathy. Um, the, the cause of encephalopathy that we is extremely high yield on the test is HIE. And I think you're going you're gonna to walk us through that data, correct? That's right. Um... <clears throat> And actually, there are a few major topics in in HIE that I think are pretty high yield. I think briefly we'll review the um, kind of criteria for management of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy um, with therapeutic hypothermia. So um, the major criteria, greater than or equal to 36 weeks gestational age and less than six hours old. Um, they're uh, a scent and having uh, the following a sentinel, sentinel event prior to delivery, things like uterine rupture, profound fetal bradycardia, cord prolapse, um, a low APGAR scar, less than or equal to five minutes, five at 10 minutes of age, 
the need for prolonged resuscitation at birth, chest compressions and or intubation and or mask ventilation ongoing at 10 minutes, um, documentation of acidosis. So this can come from the cord blood or the neonatal blood optimally within 60 minutes of birth. And this is typically characterized by a pH of less than seven. And this corresponds with an abnormal base excess. So making sure that this acidosis is really a metabolic component, not respiratory. So um, this can come from the cord blood or the neonatal blood um, within 60 minutes of birth. <clears throat> and um, they have here less than or equal to uh, minus 16, so more acidotic. Um, and then having really um, seizures or a neurologic exam that um, is consistent with neonatal encephalopathy. And I'm not going to go over the all the Sarnot stages, um, but they have a great table um, on page 25. There are lots of resources for looking at the Sarnot, but um, the characteristic findings are abnormal level of consciousness, abnormal muscle tone, um, and while um, you can have hypertonia, this is typically characterized by um, significant hypotonia, low tone, and in the worst case scenario, really flaccid, no, no tone whatsoever, abnormal posturing, abnormal tendon reflexes, uh, evidence of myoclonus, um, abnormal uh, basic reflexes, the suck, the moro, the tonic neck, or the oculocephalic reflexes. Having abnormal autonomic symptoms. So the pupils are um, either um, dilated or constricted. Uh, worst care scenario, they don't um, make any change uh, when response or no response to light. You can have abnormal heart rate. Um, seizures are always abnormal. Um, and obviously, we're getting better and better at including things like the EEG and the amplitude EEG um, to help us distinguish abnormal background pattern that is concerning for encephalopathy. So once you've ruled in that a baby can meet the criteria for therapeutic hypothermia, and obviously there's a lot of discussion about cooling younger kids, cooling kids that are more than six hours of age, cooling smaller babies, cooling mild cases, um, but these are still in research, in discussion. So I, I don't anticipate we'll see those on this iteration of the boards. So therapeutic hypothermia, what is the rationale? The point is to reduce cerebral metabolism, reduce ATP consumption and gene activation. Um, and this gene activation process, which I'll talk about, um, leads to this the initiation progression of brain injury. So the, the goal is to try to stop the progression of brain injury. A recent meta-analysis demonstrated significantly reduced mortality and disability at 18 months, and this benefit was sustained into school age. And the effect is evident in moderate versus severe encephalopathy. So the babies who tend to do have the best outcomes after therapeutic hypothermia are those babies in the moderate category. It doesn't seem to help the babies as much in the severe category or in the mild category. There are uh, complications to cooling. These include bradycardia, thrombocytopenia, pulmonary hypertension, subcutaneous fat necrosis, and electrolyte abnormalities. 
And the general procedure is that you, you get a HUD ultrasound, you look for early intracranial hemorrhage, which might be a contraindication to cooling. Um, since um, bleeding is also one of the adverse effects of, of cooling. The other contraindications for cooling at this time are, are, are gestational age less than 34 weeks, a small baby. They have here 1750, obviously, at institutions um, this um, may be different where you work. Severe congenital anomalies, genetic syndromes, metabolic disorders, other things that might account for the presentation that are not HIE. Septicemia and an uncorrectable coagulopathy. So something that we might make dramatically worse with cooling. Cooling can be done as whole body or head only. Um, the target temperature is 33.5 plus or minus one degree uh, Celsius, and the duration is 72 hours, after which time rewarming is performed, um, and we progress in the rewarming stage at 0.2 to 0.5 degrees uh, Celsius per hour until the core temperature um, has reached 36.5. After the cooling procedure, we get an MRI um, to give us the best indication of what brain injury um, persists. And obviously, part of the management of babies during cooling is serial lab monitoring with lactates, blood gases, CBCs, assessment for coagulopathy, liver function, electrolytes, especially magnesium, calcium, and glucose, which are common to have derangements. And uh, frequently, they need uh, have other supportive care needs. So asphyxia, but also cooling, can have multi-systemic effects. Um, especially if the neurologic injury is severe and diffuse, this inflammation um, causes lots of other problems. Acute asphyxia also elicits the diving reflex, um, which, as you'll remember, is a preferred blood flow to the brain, the heart, and the adrenal glands with vasoconstriction to other organs. So often while we're evaluating babies for um, HIE, we can't do a very good job of evaluating the brain, but we can look at um, effects in the other end organs that are likely to have suffered, especially because they had lack of blood flow, in particular because of this vasoconstriction to other organs, in an effort to continue to provide brain, a blood to the brain, the heart, and the adrenal gland. Seizures are common, are a possible um, uh, accompaniment to asphyxia. And so that's why we have babies on the EEG or an amplitude EEG to monitor for seizure activity. They can often be resistant to anticonvulsant therapy. Um, and I think this is an important point because sometimes we keep treating, we keep treating, and the babies um, have are having ongoing seizures. Typically, seizures are first noted at age 12 to 24 hours. The other next most common time for seizures are during rewarming, and they often resolve by age five to seven days as the underlying acute encephalopathy and the edema and the inflammation resolve. Um, phenobarbital remains the first line agent uh, for seizures in HIE. The, cardi uh, the cardiac system can also be affected um, because of a transient myocardial ischemia, um, in the severest form, this can lead to congestive heart failure or left or right ventricular dysfunction and hypotension. You can have tricuspid regurgitation. 
Renal dysfunction may lead to oliguria um, in the initial stages and possibly lead to acute tubular necrosis. Um, and then frequently after the oliguric phase, we see a polyuric phase that we must take into account. And pulmonary hypertension is also very common, especially in those babies affected by meconium aspiration. And so asphyxia itself is a risk factor for pulmonary hypertension in addition to cooling, which is another risk factor for pulmonary hypertension. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of HIE. I think this is actually a really important table. Uh, they like to ask questions about this um, in our book. This is page 27 of Neurology. And they really show what is happening after that sentinel event. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start in this latent phase in the one hour to kind of the six hours um, of life. Um, you can see that the brain is using a lot of, um, of energy. And this um, latent phase is characterized by hypoperfusion, so decreased cerebral blood flow. And the cellular things going on are recovery of oxidative metabolism versus ongoing mitochondrial injury. There's excitotoxicity. Uh, receptor hyperactivity and a, an accumulation of inflammatory things, calcium, nitric oxide, um, things like that. This is an acute inflammatory response, which begins to elicit this epigenetic modification. And that's why we're in the therapeutic window. So basically, we can't really change anything that happened at the time of delivery or before the time of delivery or in the delivery room. But in this um, latent phase, the one to six hour mark where there's um, excitotoxicity, that's when we can begin therapeutic hypothermia to try to decrease the acute inflammatory response and uh, decrease this epigenetic modification that leads to ongoing inflammation. Now, if we can't do that, if we don't start uh, the therapeutic hypothermia, well, we enter what is the secondary phase, secondary energy failure. And this occurs in 6 to 24 hours to days after an insult. This um, is characterized by hyperperfusion, deteriorating mitochondrial function. We may see seizures in the face of cytotoxic edema. And the inflammation and persistent immune cell activation and gliosis um, continues. And this is really where we start to see delayed and programmed cell death leading to damage of these neurologic structures. And then the tertiary phase is weeks to years after the injury. Um, we hope to see normalization of the blood flow. And because our babies are, have so much brain plasticity, we can sometimes see partial recovery. There may still be some uh, alkalosis in the, in the brain. We see brain cell proliferation and synaptogenesis, which can be impeded by ongoing inflammation. And it can be impeded by the gliosis that occurred during the secondary cell death phase. And we see these ongoing persistent epigenetic changes that were in response to the inflammation. And after that time, we may see repair of those structures, but some of them will be um, permanently damaged, unfortunately. Do you okay. have a question for us? I do have a question for you. This is Neurology Question 63. 
A term infant is born by vaginal delivery complicated by shoulder dystocia. The infant requires significant resuscitation, including intubation and epinephrine. APGAR scores are 3, 4, and 5 at 1, 5, and 10 minutes, respectively. The cord arterial gas shows a pH of 698, 6.98, and a base deficit of 15, a minus 15. Following transfer of the NICU, the infant has severe encephalopathy. The amplitude EEG shows an isoelectric, so that's a severely um, abnormal, kind of flattened, very low-voltage background pattern. And the neonatologist decides to initiate therapeutic hypothermia. Which of the following statements about therapeutic hypothermia in newborns is true? True statements. We are looking looking for for the the true true statements. That's right. And these are kind of long answers, but is it A, therapeutic hypothermia has been proven to reduce the rate of neurodevelopmental impairment among infants with mild HIE? B, Therapeutic hypothermia is associated with an increased incidence of pulmonary hypertension. C, therapeutic hypothermia is associated with increased seizures, which is likely secondary to more infants with severe encephalopathy surviving. Therapeutic hypothermia is only proven to improve outcomes among infants with moderate encephalopathy. Or E, therapeutic hypothermia reduces the risk of death or neurodevelopmental impairment among infants with moderate or severe HIE by approximately 25%. Um, I don't have the question in front of me, but the last statement that you uh, gave us sounds like the most correct one to me. Um that is correct. So E is correct. Therapeutic hypothermia reduces the risk or of death or neurodevelopmental impairment among infants with moderate or severe HIE by approximately 25%. Multiple trials have shown improved outcomes for infants with moderate or severe HIE, at least in the developed world, we'll say, randomized to ther- therapeutic hypothermia. The most recent Cochrane meta-analysis showed an overall benefit of therapeutic hypothermia with a 25% reduction and the combined outcome of death or major neurodevelopmental disability uh, with a risk ratio of 0.75. Analysis of the individual components gave similar outcomes, uh, 0.75 for death, 0.77 for major neurodevelopmental disability. And subgroup analysis stratified by degree of encephalopathy continued to show improved outcomes for both moderate with a, with a risk ratio of 0.68 and severe encephalopathy. Additionally, studies have shown a reduction in seizure burden, seizure frequency associated with therapeutic hypothermia. Although RCTs of therapeutic hypothermia for newborns were designed to randomize infants with either moderate or severe HAE, several of them include subsets of infants with mild HAE that had been randomized. And it should be noted that there are studies ongoing to study the mild population. So far, this represents a small sample size, but there was no significant difference in, in outcome between those with mild HIE who were and who were not cooled. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is both in the cool cap, they had an N of eight. In the Chinese selective head cooling trial, they had 39. In the ICE trial, they had 42. So to date, though, again, there are studies ongoing, no RCT has shown benefits of therapeutic hypothermia in the mild HIE group. Okay. Okay. You. you worked really hard on this one. <laughs> yes. I'll see you tomorrow, Daphne. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.